Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. But first, a word from our sponsor. Potential is everywhere in the Choctaw people. It's in our schools and students. It's in our small businesses and entrepreneurs. Potential is in our lifestyle and health. It's in our culture and heritage. Passion and commitment is in our blood. Ingenuity and economy are a tradition. And the Chutla Foundation was founded for this potential. To cultivate minds and hearts, to stimulate ideas and passions, to extend lives and improve health through education, and to preserve and promote the power of our past. The Chatha Foundation, meeting the potential of the Choctaw people. An epithet that early 20th century anthropologist John Swanton used of Meshulatubby was last great chief of the Choctaw. He was about six feet tall and quite corpulent. He possessed a lively, cheerful disposition and as all fat men was good natured and would get drunk. He was a noted chief of the Oklafalaya clan, long people, and possessed a black keen penetrating eye and a lowing yet meditative brow. This is a compilation of quotes from John Swanton, Peter Pitchlin, and my guest, Stephen Hunter, the fifth great-grandson of the notable Chief Mushalatubby. Welcome to Native Chalk Talk, Stephen. Halito. So, Stephen, these quotes came from a paper you wrote called The Last Great Chief of the Choctaw, Mushalatubby's Fight Against Assimilation. And I'm excited to learn more about your ancestor, Mushalatubby, but first, I'd love for our listeners to get to know you more. In addition to your research and writing, you're also a preacher. So tell us more about the church and your good work there. Yeah, we're in Murray, Kentucky, which is the westernmost part of Kentucky. And uh, our congregation is, it's the Glendale Road Church of Christ. And we have about 800 members on roll, but on a Sunday morning, we'll have around 500, give or take. The number has dwindled a little bit due to COVID restrictions Mm -hmm. and, you know, Mm -hmm. people's concerns about that. But, you know, we meet every Sunday morning, worship, have Bible study every Sunday night, worship again and uh, midweek Bible study. Sounds like a pretty good sized church. So y'all who live in the area, be sure to go check it out. Tell us a bit about your family. Well, I have a wife. Her name is Stephanie. She she's is beautiful. I think so. I think so. Met her in uh, a shoe store when we were 16. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. You picked yeah. up your wife in a shoe store. Well, that's, she worked. She, actually. She, she worked there actually. Okay. Love yeah. it. And she's yeah. like, I think you're I, size 10 and you're like, you're the one for me. <laughs> okay. That's not how it went, but how it went is actually funny. So we're, a buddy and I are walking by and I notice her and I'm like, man, that girl is good looking. And <laughs> now here's the kicker. She had her back to me. 
<laughs> so I'm, I'm judging based off the back and you can draw whatever conclusion you'd like. Oh, my Lord. So I'm thinking if the front looks near as good as the back and she turned around and I'm like, oh, it this is the moment for me. <laughs> yeah. So I told my buddy, I said, I'm going to go in the store. He's like, all right, I'm going to go and do this, that and the other. And I'll <laughs> head home. I'm like, OK, cool. So I'm lurking between the aisles. And do you remember the shoes K-Swiss? Yes. Okay. Sure do. Well, it, it's a male and a female shoe. So I, I was apparently standing in front of some K-Swiss and I guess what I was doing was kind of like stalking. It was kind of creepy now that I look back on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was one of her coworkers comes around and goes, sir, can I help you? Now I'm a quick thinker. I grab a shoe and I go, do you have this in a size 12? She says, well, as a matter of fact, we do in the men's aisle. <laughs> I picked up a woman's K-Swiss and so, so then, smooth so smooth yeah I it, I tried but so her co-worker and I got to talking and Stephanie told me later that she thought I was interested in her co-worker because I was talking to her and I said no I was getting the details on you you know <laughs> because the co-worker and I were talking and then I turned and she's I'm like where did she go and her co-worker said well she probably went to get something to eat I'm like oh so anyway, apparently I'm a conversationalist and can talk to anybody. Well, it obviously so, worked because you swept her off her feet and the rest. I, let, listen, right? now listen, the, when I met that girl, when I met Stephanie, the first night I met her. So I'm throwing out all the Choctaw charm that I have. And she <laughs> is as straight faced as a poker player. I was, to be honest, I was uncertain. And so later, you know, when we look back and talk on that, I was like, man, I was laying it on thick. I, could, I couldn't get a smile out of you. She's like, yeah, I was being stern because I, you know, so she was playing hard to get and I was pouring it on thick. And so we were playing each other, as a matter of fact. She's a smart woman. Well, she married me. So you might want to retract that <laughs> statement. I don't know. Yeah, but, I might want to think about that one. Yeah. So Stephanie and I, we actually have three children. We have our daughter, Bree, who's 19. And there is a second child who, who was miscarried okay. and we, we never knew if that was a boy or girl, but we always count that child. And then we have a 14 year old son. His name is Cole. Oh, I love it. And I love that you still consider your, the middle child as part of your family. Yes. Well, now let's talk about the rest of your family, the <laughs> four legged ones. Oh, where shall we begin? We, <laughs> we have three dogs, uh, two of which are great Pyrenees and they're outside dogs. Uh, the mother is Sorsha, uh, which is Gaelic. It means bright because when we, when I got her, she was solid white and just a bright little fluff ball. Uh, <laughs> more or less now she's off white because she rolls in dirt and mud and all that. Perfect. Uh, yeah. And then we have her son, Chunk, and he got his <laughs> name because out of that litter, I mean, he was like, three times the size of the rest of his siblings. And I'm like, man, that dog's a chunk. And it just stuck. And then we have inside the house, our miniature schnauzer. His name is Winston. So named after the great British prime minister, Sir Winston Churchill. Churchill. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we have a cat. That's my son's cat. Uh, her name is Nia. And uh, we have, I don't know, about 15 chickens, two roosters. I don't, we haven't officially named all the hens. I just call them girls but uh i just the call them chickens <laughs> yeah i go hey girls you know come here girls yeah, yeah. and then there's their rooster casanova uh for <laughs> obvious reasons and we have a silky rooster we call him Ooh. little man for people who don't know silkies are the ones that look like they have a, a messed up 
afro on top yes, of their heads. Yes, I love those. Yeah, and they awesome. also they also have the the feathery feet too, like uh, yeah. bell bottoms or something. So we have all the chickens, and they supply us with eggs, which is very good. But we, the best part, arguably, are our two goats that are brothers, Bert and Ernie. Yes. So let's stop right here. This <laughs> okay. may be the most important part of everyone's day. So please tell us more about these goats. I've seen pictures and I'm obsessed. So what are their names again? Yep. Bert and Ernie, just like Sesame Street. They <laughs> are Nigerian dwarf goats. I have honestly thought about writing children's books about the adventures <laughs> of Bert and Ernie. I may have to change the names because of copyright, but these guys, they are so funny. This past week alone, I've had my wife and I, we've had to untangle Ernie from there's a poultry fence that surrounds their enclosure and we have it attached to a hot wire which is supposed to shock and keep them away but for some reason ernie has wound up in the fence and apparently bert just hops off his back over the fence and so we've we've gone up there and bert's like Meh. and ernie's over there going ah! you know he's stuck trying to get free so i love yeah. how bert's not really that good of a friend if you think about it it's like Oh my God, you're stuck. Ooh, I can escape because of you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, and what's funny is every time we have unstuck Ernie, Bert walks over there and kind of rubs up on him like, sorry, man. <laughs> well, I'm thinking that one of your goats is smarter than the other. Uh, yeah. And just, to, <laughs> just depending on the day, it depends which one it is. So. <laughs> I'm obsessed with these goats. They're so funny. You tell me these stories of things they're doing and I'm like, I can just picture it in fact i wish that we could just spend the rest of this episode on the goats because oh, man. that would be cool but maybe we'll do that in another one we'll just talk yeah, about yeah. goats the, the indigenous the nigerian dwarf goats in kentucky <laughs> yes <laughs> well oh, so please tell me you're going to send me some photos so our guests can see bert and ernie and and the rest of the zoo at your house yes but they're not for sale they're mine okay you, well. you can look but you can't have now you also have kind of a, a wish list of more animals, right? Yeah, I would like to have a pet raccoon and a pet owl. You know, you get on Instagram, you see these videos with, yes. with pet raccoons and owls. And I'm like, I want one, but the raccoons around here prefer to prey on my chickens. So I've had to really fortify oh, their pen. Okay. Yeah. And, and the owl, uh, we have several <laughs> owls here nearby and but they keep high. They don't want to come down low so I can pet them. I so. wonder why. Well, you had you had me at goats, but add a raccoon and an owl and I'll be coming over to Kentucky to hang out with the Hunter family. Yeah. So, all right. So we've got the zoo at the Hunter house and tell me more about where you live in Kentucky. I love Kentucky. Yeah, Murray, Kentucky is where we live. It's at the, it's almost at the farthest Western point of Kentucky, almost. Uh, a few years ago, we were voted, I, I believe it was in USA Today, we were voted the friendliest small town in America. But people that are, that may be like more inclined to MBA, they will know us as the university town that John ja Morant played at. John ja Morant wow. is currently uh, a player for the Memphis Grizzlies. And he, he was drafted, he was the number two pick. Uh, I forgot who the first was, but he went from Murray State University to the Memphis Grizzlies, which is good because Memphis is only three hours from us. So a lot of the Murray State fans will go down to Memphis to watch him play for the Grizzlies. Oh, nice. 
Yeah, so, but actually where we are in Western Kentucky, it's called the Jackson Purchase Area uh, due to a certain president that most of us Native Americans don't like, named mm, Andrew right. Jackson. Uh, but yes. this land where we live, it used to be Chickasaw territory. Okay, yeah. But we, we do know that there were people here, settlers were here as back, at, at least we know as back as far as 1834, if not sooner. Great. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of good history there in Kentucky so much. And we'll talk about your least favorite president here in a little bit, too. So and even though you're on what used to be Chickasaw land, you're from what tribe? Mississippi Band of Choctaw. Woohoo! And who is your, your chief there? Chief Cyrus Ben. OK, and I was reading that he was sworn in as the youngest chief elected at age 41 in mm -hmm. 2019. So congrats to your chief. That's awesome. And Speaking of chiefs, I'm excited to learn more about your grandfather, your great, 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 that's five greats, grandfather, Chief Mushalatubby. And I've always known of him, but when I read this, the paper that you wrote, you actually shed so much more light on him and his life and his turmoil over both the traditional ways and the new ways. So it's super fascinating. I think our listeners are going to love this. So let's delve in. Well, you know, to put it very, very simply, he was a minor character within a larger story. But, you know, I might say he's not as minor a character as what he is often portrayed as in books and articles written about the Choctaw. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting that you point that out, that minor character within a larger story, because he truly had some hard decisions to make and influences that he had to carry through and I, I don't envy him. No, I, I don't either. Cause see, here's the thing. He lived on the precipice of the ancient and the progressive ways. And he was one of the three great traditional Choctaw chiefs or Minkos. And he went into exile with the Choctaw people, whereas the other two passed away before that exile. Mm. So he, he's regarded as a true Choctaw patriot. He was a man of stunningly strong character, and he faced down with enormous strength and determination the advocates of assimilation, and he he led his people to maintain the traditional ways. So that's that's largely what he is known for. Wow, sounds like a grandfather you could be very proud of. So let's start at the beginning, way back to when the Choctaws were first welcoming settlers. Mm -hmm. Well, the Choctaws were obviously welcoming, you know, incomers before the United States was ever a country. Uh, of course, you know, a lot of people know about Christopher Columbus. What they don't know is he never set foot on our continent. <laughs> he actually he actually thought he was in India, but he was in the Bahamas. And so that's why we are called Indians is because of that. So that's in the late 15th century. Then in the 16th century, you have Hernando de Soto who was Spanish and he encountered our people and the Spanish took some of the area to, to live in, to trade in. And um, after the Spanish came the French and after the French, the English, then you have the Revolutionary War and now you have the Americans. But we had treaties and traded with the Spanish, the French and the English. And so we were sort of accustomed to being hospitable, if you will, mm -hmm. and welcoming to, to strangers and, and outsiders. 
but it wasn't a territorial dispute as much then. It was more of a, hey, you guys are here? Great. You have these things? Great. We have these things. So it, it was a barter system. Right. They weren't maybe worried so much at that time that they were just coming to take their land. Is that accurate? Exactly. Exactly. There was some colonization uh, tendencies, <clears throat> mm-hmm. but you know, our people, the Choctaw were very amenable to some of their customs and their culture, you know, so we would look at it and we'd go, I like that about you. I'm going to adopt it as a part of me, you know? And, and so we were the type of people that we, when we encountered outsiders, if we saw something that they did that we thought was a better way of doing things, we would do that too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it wasn't so, it wasn't black and white. It was like, Hey, that's, that's a good idea. We should start doing that. So what were the Choctaw like overall at that time? They were primarily agricultural and peaceful. Um, that, that doesn't mean that we never had skirmishes or fights, but as a generality, we were rather peaceful. Of course, you know, hunting was big in the warmer months. We would eat squirrel and rabbit in the larger months, deer and bison, the larger month, the cooler months. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so we would trade and barter with animal skins, but also we gave of ourselves. So if in each of the agreements and trading agreements we had with the Spanish, the French and the English at those respective times, we, we gave our allegiance. So we would fight with them as their allies against their enemies, whoever that would be. But it was good for us because you've got the Spanish, the French and the English who control various portions of the country at one time. Mm. And so we can use this competition among them for our advantage, as did most tribes. Smart. And I've always thought of the Choctaw as very smart, very businesslike in everything that they did. Um, So the Choctaw, along with other tribes, were hunting and trading and, as you said, forming these alliances with the Europeans. And then in 1770, It was the eve of the Revolutionary War, and a very important person was born. That's right. In 1770, uh, Mashallah Tubby was born. And so after the Revolutionary War, Choctaws are now trading with the United States, as well as the individual states. And, And that's a distinction that's important because you have the United States, uh, but the individual states in that time before the Civil War retained an enormous amount of sovereignty over and above the federal government. So just to be doing business with the United States, you can't think that that encompasses everybody. We would work with the federal government, yes, but we also had trading partnerships with the individual states. Such a good point and a thought that I'd never really contemplated really. So because the United States had formed, there arose a new so-called issue that needed to be addressed, what to do with the Indians. Exactly. See, the newly formed United States government, they they began meeting with indigenous peoples. And in 1785, the Choctaws were among those tribes that assembled in South Carolina to negotiate a treaty. And and the purpose was so that we could trade, so that we could coexist Mm. and just live on this land with this new government in harmony. So is it safe to say then that the first treaties were, they were around trade then? 
Yeah, some of them were. It, it was mainly for trade, but there were other perks. And you have what in 1786, you have the Treaty of Hopewell that was signed and the agreement in that treaty uh, with the Choctaw and the Chickasaw, it, it contained 11 articles. But when you read it in its entirety, you go, you know, it's, it almost seems like our ancestors were somewhat fleeced. Okay, so what did that mean then for the Choctaw, these um, treaties with the 11 articles? One of the overarch, if you read it, the overarching thing that when I read it, I was like, well, that's concerning. The, the Choctaws agreed to be subordinate to the United States. And so that meant that United States law took precedence over our own. Now, we didn't have a written system of law at this time. We had a traditional understood spoken law. But even within the nation, if there were, say, Americans that were within our territory that broke the law, we could not execute our form of justice on them. They would have to be returned to their respective states, to the republic, or, or whatever the case would have been. Mm-hmm. Do you even think they knew what they were signing at the time? I mean, even my great-great-grandmother couldn't speak much English, and she would sign documents with an X for signature because she couldn't sign her name, as we see in a lot of these documents, and that was in the late 1800s. So here we are in the late 1700s. I can't imagine they always knew what they were getting into. Right. I've uh, One of the things that I've had to do before is preach through a translator, and I would imagine that they had someone who might have known enough English that they probably translated between the two parties, but it probably wasn't as clearly understood by our ancestors as it was clearly understood by the the Americans. Mm -hmm. Um, They also became under obligation to report any activity deemed harmful against United States interests. So it was almost like, kind of like we were a vassal state. Hmm. Okay. So let's say a non-Choctaw breaks a law within the Choctaw nation. Could they punish that, that criminal? They could not. They could not. Oh. And, and for those listening at the time, the Choctaw nation was in Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana. So we're, wow. we're talking before the <laughs> removal, but the lawbreakers were brought back to their respective states and that's where they would suffer trial and punishment. So the treaty's aim was a peaceful relationship between the tribes and and the uh, United States, but technically, when you read it, it benefited the not, the United States a lot more than it did the oh, tribes. Surprising. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and and you know some of the language at least, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but look up the Treaty of Hopewell uh, and read it for yourself. But it really came across as the United States viewing specifically the Choctaw. And I'm sure the other tribes as well, but as inferior and needing this new republic as their lord. So those are my words. No, that that's interesting. I mean, you read it. So is it is it a big document, by the way? It's not too bad. It's not a Stephen King novel. I mean, you can get through it in a few minutes. But just as scary. I noticed in your paper you mentioned the Spanish had control over a lot of land before the US became a country. And that included the Mississippi River, right? Uh, Correct. Yes. The at this time. Most people have heard of the Louisiana Purchase, Mm -hmm. and if we think about the Louisiana Purchase, we think about the state of Louisiana, but the Louisiana Purchase was the state of Louisiana and a huge swath of land west of the Mississippi up to Indian Territory. So, Hmm. you know, folks in Oklahoma, that was 
the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, so if you want to Google a map of that and look up what that was, it was a huge section of land. But anyway, President Thomas Jefferson wanted the U.S. to control the Mississippi River for defensive purposes uh, and also to have a border and a front against the Spanish. Now, this was before the Louisiana Purchase. Because see, the, the Spanish had control of the Mississippi River, and so mm -hmm. the Choctaws continued their relationship with them. So Jefferson would use the welcoming disposition of our ancestors to benefit the United States, but also to obtain their land. Because Choctaws knew very little about economics, and Jefferson used this ignorance to the country's advantage. So what he would do, he would urge trading companies to establish their trading posts throughout our territory, and they would extend credit to our people. So as the debt accrued and reached a, a point where creditors demanded payment, obviously we had no cash on hand. We had no silver, gold, mm -hmm. any, any legal tender. We, we weren't used to doing business that way. So the government would step in and go, hey, we'll take care of your debt. And so in order to take care of your debt, we want some land. Now, not everybody wow. got credit, but the, the chiefs did, you know, the Minkos, the, their chiefs, and what a lot of people may not know, you have the three chiefs that were over the entire tribe, over their each districts, and then within villages, you had chiefs, you had a war chief, and so forth, so there are a lot of chiefs, but mm -hmm. they were given credit, the interpreters and Choctaw traders, so a lot of these, because, you know, the chiefs would always look out for their people. Mm -hmm. So they would probably accumulate huge debts because some of the goods they would pass on to their people. And, you know, the, the, the tab got real high and, you know, the, the, it was a scheme by the government and it was concocted by the mind of Thomas Jefferson. So sad. So speaking of chiefs, who was the chief at this point? Well, at this time it was Homas Tubby, who was Mashallah Tubby's uncle. And now I will give the caveat that some sources say it was his father. So why do I say father, uncle things, yeah. <laughs> you know, like a lot of people in our community will say cousin, brother, or, you yeah. know, it's like, which one is it? You uncle. never find out. Right. Hey, uncle. Hey, uncle. Well, you know, the tribe was matrilineal. So typically, you know, anything like that. Yes. You know, Mashallah yeah. Tubby would have ascended through his mother's brother because the tribe and this far different from western civilization and the patriarchy we mm -hmm. actually did it right the women had the power in the tribe yeah uh, yeah but hamas Tabi was a chief and he was party to several negotiations with the united states as well as the other mingos uh there was the treaty of fort adams in 1801 we gave away 2 million acres to satisfy debts then. There is the Treaty of Hobukantupa, if I said that correctly, in 1803, and we gave up 1 million acres then. So, so far, we're up to 3 million acres they've got. In 1805, the debt rose again. So you have two treaties, the Treaty of Limits and Mount Dexter, and that resulted in 4 million acres of our southern and eastern lands being ceded to the government. And at that time, the government agreed to pay our debts. So they gave us $50,000, 48,000 of those dollars was used to discharge the debt. That's a lot of debt. So over $1.1 million in today's dollars, if, if what I, my research right. is correct. Wow. And it sounds like a lot of land was also given up. So how much land was ceded during Jefferson's presidency then? During the 
Jefferson presidency, which was uh, the first decade of the 19th century, nearly 8 million acres from Mobile, Alabama to Southern Mississippi became part of mm. United States territory. You know, you have to wonder too, if the Choctaws thought, so we're giving up all this land and what are we getting in return? Mm-hmm. Just ugh. now, Hamastubby. So he died, was it 1809? Correct. That's the same year that Jefferson's presidency in- ended. Okay. And I suppose I can guess who became chief next, Mushala Tubby, right? Yes. He, uh, he succeeded his uncle around this time. And this was when the borders of the nation had moved inward due to these debts incurred and the inability to pay. So uh, th- that cycle of debt wouldn't change with him because after his uncle's death, Mashallah Tubby assumed responsibility for his uncle's debts and he continued those same habits. So it hmm. really, you know, the way we do business today, we're like, how could they fall for this? Yeah. But they had no notion of this sort of economics. That's how the Europeans had always done things uh, or how they had done them for so long. We would barter, you know, and so when we're getting all these goods and giving nothing in return, we don't, it's kind of like if you use a credit card or a debit card, you keep swiping that thing. And before you know it, you're like, wow, I've yeah. spent that much. So tell me more about your grandfather, Chief Mushalatubi. So he was one of three full-blooded chiefs who oversaw the Choctaw Nation. The other two were Pushmataha and Apunkshanubi. And they served with his uncle, Hamastabi, and also with Mushalatubi. So each of these chiefs oversaw different districts across what's now Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana. Now, Mashallah Tubby led the Northeastern District, which was the same one that his uncle had led. Okay. And, and then as you even mentioned earlier, there are villages within the districts, right? Yes, exactly. There are villages, and usually over those villages, there were uh, there could be a council and a chief. Uh, there was a war chief from each village. And all of these war chiefs and chiefs aided the big chiefs, the Mikos, as a council. And so it wasn't a matter of, you know, Choctaw fighting each other to get more land for their district. It was everybody working together because of our shared history, because of our shared culture and language. Hmm. Love that. And so what was Mashalatubi like as a, a leader? Well, he was a fierce warrior and he was a defender of the nation, but also of his district. Now, people often traveled through his district uh, from Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee. And there are records where occasionally an Ohioan would rob a Kentuckian or a Tennessean. Those Ohioans. You know, well, and if I had to guess, some of it was probably they had a lot farther to travel. So they they needed a little long, you know, I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. But now there were trading posts, so we can't give them too much credit. I'm just saying. (laughs) Pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anytime someone was accosted in his district and such as an Ohioan robbing a Kentuckian or Tennessee, Mushalatubi, as soon as he learned this, he would bring his warriors together. They would pursue the robber and without fail, according to what I've read, they always apprehended them. And then they would take them. If it was an Ohioan, they would take them all the way to Columbus so that they could receive their justice. And so do you think to this day, Columbus is filled with robbers? I've never been there. Robbers. I've never been there. So I will, uh, uh, I can neither confirm nor deny. 
<laughs> we are single-handedly taking off every Ohioan out there. We love you, Ohio. <laughs> but I don't know. Speak for yourself. <laughs> Speak for yourself. I don't. I don't know them people. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's a pretty cool story. That Mushalatubby was like, "Hey, we don't do that here. We're gonna pursue you, and we're gonna take you to Columbus and drop you off there." Oh yeah, and I would. I would be willing to bet that if he didn't have to subject himself to the law of the United States that he probably would have taken care of business himself. Yeah, I bet. And of course, because of the Treaty of Hopewell, he'd have to return them to their state and honor the treaty. So he'd let the state government take care of that situation. So right. now I was curious, was he was he married? What was his family life like? Oh, he was a stud. Let me tell you, he had two wives. <laughs> As that just was sounds like more trouble to me. <laughs> he had two wives, one that was chucked off full-blooded and the other one was a quarter white which is kind of funny to say right when he was ever around white people he's recorded as having doted on his partially white wife but observers always stated that he favored his full-blooded wife she was actually one that ran the house and the other wife the the one quarter wife often yielded to her interesting so he kind of played the politics oh look mm -hmm. here's my part white wife yeah. <laughs> isn't she great so you got to wonder how things went knowing one wife was favored over the other by the way well I will just say I have only one wife to favor so <laughs> that's all I can offer <laughs> yeah let's not even go any further than that so um you mentioned he was a fierce warrior so tell me more about that now before he was Minko over the northeastern district he was actually a war chief in his village and he led several expeditions against the Osage. There's one story, it's, I think it's a little humorous, but also I'm very impressed by it. So on one raid, he takes about 34 warriors and one of the prophets, uh, and you know, the, the prophet was the, I believe the Choctaw name is Hopai. Someone will correct me if I'm wrong on that, I guarantee it. Sure, oh yes, they will. But yes, <laughs> but, but he took one of the prophets with him and that was you know, the, the holy men of the tribe at that time. They didn't just sit in a church and pray. They often went on raids and in battles and stuff like that because it was that they were there for good fortune. Well, the prophet was injured in this particular raid. And so the men took him and hit him in a thicket and the Osage were focused on looking for the prophet now, I'm not entirely sure why that was. Maybe they believed if they could capture him and kill mm -hmm. him, that that would be like a bad omen. I'm not sure. So anyway, Mushalatubi and his men, they actually retreat. And so the Osage think, we've got this. And so they're looking for the prophet. But what they actually did, they retreated and they routed the Osage and killed two of their warriors and ran uh -huh. them off. Wow. So on the one hand, you're like, that's kind of funny because I can see that happening. But it's also very cunning. So by 1811, we see Tecumseh, who had been going around trying to get natives to come together in unity to fight the U.S., and he also was trying to sway the Choctaw, of course. So tell us more about that. It's super fascinating. Okay, so Tecumseh was trying to, he was trying to create a, what I would call an Indian confederacy. He was trying to get all the tribes to come together to fight the new United States government. Not very old, you know, 1811, but by this time they had taken so many tribes, or rather they had taken their land, and so a lot of tribes were homeless. Some of them were nearly extinct because of the sicknesses and illnesses. So Tecumseh is like, look, if we all get together, we can withstand them. So he and his prophet go to Mushalatubi's home at what one author 
referred to as the mo one of the most significant councils in the nation's history. But when the prophet delivered the message, it confused people. So Mashallah nephew, John Pinchlin, had to actually counteract the prophet's claims to the people. So Choctaw leaders resisted Tecumseh. They were like, no thanks. We don't want a part of this. And they kept their good relationship with the Republic. Yeah, and I mean, it's politics even back then. It's fascinating to think of what could have happened if Tecumseh had been successful in gaining Choctaw support. And because he had their neighboring Creek support and he was gaining traction from what I understand. And so would have been interesting to see what would have happened. Oh yeah, well, the War of 1812, which is one of the most unappreciated wars in American history, uh, it was essentially a second revolutionary war. We fought the British again. And mm -hmm. had we lost that war, the, the experiment of the United States would have been over. But mm -hmm. before the War of 1812, Miko Pushmataha had approached an American officer he was offering the Choctaws as help. And the reason he did this, he knew that the Choctaws were gonna take one side one way or the other. And he wanted them to be on the side of the United States. But there were some Choctaw who were swayed by Tecumseh and his speech and they joined Tecumseh and the Creeks and others. Uh, but overall, the tribe supported the Americans when the time came. And once the War of 1812 began, it was only a matter of time before Choctaw involvement became inevitable. Yeah, it sounds like there was a lot of unrest during that time. And to add to it all, the Creek War, I mean, my goodness, it, the Creek War begins in 1813 when the Creeks attacked Fort Mims. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the Choctaws volunteered to help fight the Creeks. Uh, as a matter of fact, there were so many that uh, I believe, I know the number was in excess of 700. Uh, mm -hmm. So many Choctaw that came to fight that the Americans didn't have enough weapons to arm them all. Wow. When the Choctaws band together, they band together. So why do you think they were so willing to fight the Creeks? Well, if, if I had to render a guess, it would probably be because Pushmataha and Mushalatubby despise the Red Sticks Creeks. And that may be a part of, well, it may be because there was a long war between the two tribes from 1765 to 1777. So Mushalatubby would have been in diapers for lack of a better term, around that time. But, you know, when you grow up as a kid and you hear the elders talk about, yeah, yeah we, we fought, you know, some, sometimes that animosity becomes deep-seated in yourself. Oh, totally. Uh, so did the Choctaw defeat the Creeks then? Yes, yes. By the end of 1814, they did so at Horseshoe Bend, Alabama. And Mushalatubby and his warriors aided Major Uriah Blue, and they really brought the battle to an end with this defeat. And the result of this, of the defeat of the Creeks, was that the U.S. acquired 23 million acres of Creek land in a post-war treaty, much of what we today call Alabama. Okay, back to Andrew Jackson. Let us okay. not forget that President Andrew Jackson pledged to the Choctaws. This is after the War of 1812 when the Choctaws helped to defeat um, the enemies. It's so significant to the history of the Choctaw that I think we should say it together. What did Andrew Jackson pledge? Ready? What did he pledge? His, His friendship. friendship. Yeah. <laughs> Sounded like we got put on slow roll. Yeah. No, he pledged his friendship <laughs> to the Choctaws. Oh, my God. I'll say it again. President Andrew Jackson pledged his friendship to the Choctaw 
for their help in the War of 1812. We'll come back to this in a moment, so stay tuned, listeners. So what happened to the few Choctaw that had chosen to join the Creeks during the war per Tecumseh's endeavors? Well, when they returned to the nation, they were viewed as traitors, and they were subsequently executed because of their treachery. Hmm. Isn't it interesting? I think about that, and it's like, what would you do, you know, if if you were given that option it's like you don't know what's on either side of the door you choose the side of the u.s and you might always be seen as an ally and you might be protected by that because the u.s is obviously taking over or you choose the side of you know your fellow natives even if they're from other tribes Mm -hmm. and the ones that made that choice and chose that door they were then executed so but we all know that american westward expansion started pushing the Indians further out and the newly elected president James Monroe found himself trying to figure out what to do with the situation right yeah so after the revolutionary war the new republic that's the United States they you know the federal government had no funds whatsoever there was actually talk of an insurrection against the federal government after the Revolutionary War. The only reason it didn't happen was because of George Washington. Too many men respected him. Mm. But what the government did, they would give land to some of the patriots who fought in the war, and some of that that land was out west. So you're talking, now when we say west today, we think California, but when they said west then, (laughs) they thought anything just east of the Mississippi River. So you're talking about Kentucky, you're talking about Mississippi, uh, Louisiana, Missouri. And so a lot of these folks head that way. This is after the Revolutionary War. Then President Monroe, he begins a push to acquire Indian lands. And so he executed during his presidency 40 treaties with Indians, 23 of which resulted in land acquisition. That's a lot of treaties. What a headache. Mm -hmm. So side note, President Monroe also formed the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which I didn't realize the BIA began with him, but he also expanded schools on tribal lands for those that would not remove to the West. Right. So the schools on tribal lands, they were typically administered either by the federal government or missionary society. And how do you think the chiefs felt about those schools? Well, early on, Mushalatubi and Pushmataha welcomed the schools. In fact, Mushalatubi hosted a school in his home uh, until missionary agents scolded him for his conduct, some of which was due to inebriation. Oh, (laughs) so he was drinking a little while school was going on, a little drinky drink going on. Uh, Yeah. So, yeah, the missionaries, they're like, this isn't a good option. <laughs> they weren't for that, huh? Yeah, you can't okay. do this in your you home. But it. what became problematic, you know, when the chiefs thought of education, they didn't think of it as involving Christianity at the same time. Now, the Choctaws wanted education, but they did not want salvation. So the religious aspect of the missionary education became problematic. And Mushalatubi was especially against religion in the, in the schools. Hmm. So Choctaws, I mean, that's interesting because even back to then, Choctaws have tended to value education. So, and I I didn't realize that, that, hey, he was actually for education back then. And and why do you think this is the case with him? Well, I, I think, you know, like I said earlier, if we see that someone does something a certain way and we can adopt it to be better ourselves, we do that. Mm-hmm. And so to be educated, 
in their mind was a way of learning how the white man did things. And we can also avoid ceding any more land to them. But what was bad is that as they're observing the missionaries among them operating these schools, some of the appearances and the things that they did led to the charges that the missionaries had enriched themselves at the Choctaw's expense. Hmm. So you have, it's almost like a, a pastor who wears million dollar sneakers and flies in a, a, a private jet. You're or like, has goats, you know. Listen now. So, <laughs> so but you know what I was at these ostentatious lies like, look, this is not something you're supposed to get rich off of. Mm-hmm. So this accusation plus the religious aspect, it began to slowly turn them not against the education so much, but against those who were providing it. Mm-hmm. And and what's sad is that they were on the right track about education, but unfortunately, nothing seemed to stop the settlers pushing westward and and the constant broken treaties by the government so in the fall of 1824 three mingos and a small council went to washington dc but it seemed that once again fate was not on their side tell us more about this okay this became a huge turning point in choctaw history so they're on their way to negotiate yet another treaty with the united states in washington dc while they're en route a Punxsutawney falls off of a cliff along the Ohio River in Maysville, Kentucky, wow. and at the age of 85, he dies. Crazy. So sad. Yeah. So, so that's unfortunate event number one. So yes, sad. that's just, that's just yeah. part of the bad things. Okay. Well, <laughs> when they reach D.C., they were unwell due to colds. A lot of them were sick. And so while in the capital, someone goes to get Pushmataha and he is found deceased in his hotel room and he was only 59 years old. Oh, he was young. So there's unfortunate event number two, unbelievable. So two chiefs gone just like that. And you say in your paper that the entire makeup of the Choctaw nation would change beginning in 1825. Why is that? There would be other chiefs who would replace Pushmataha and the Punxsutawney and they would join Mashalatubi, but it wasn't and it would never be the same. So one of the later replacements was Natakachi, who occupied Pushmataha's position. And he was like Mashalatubi. He was an ally for the traditional ways. But there were other prominent Choctaws who were half-bloods. And I don't mean that as a pejorative, but just as to mm-hmm. a descriptor. They would rise to power, and they were heavily in favor of missionary schools and also further assimilation. Wow. So trying to keep all of this together. Remember, we're talking today about that push and pull between progressive thoughts and the traditional ways. And I think that's something we deal with in our community even today. So something I think is interesting that came from your research is is just that very thing. You you see that in essence, Meshulatubi trying to fight this. You'll see more of it as, as we continue talking. You know, there's all this unrest and all the change that comes from that uh, that unrest and the resulting morphing of the culture of the tribes and therefore a traditional versus progressive reaction again so let's talk about that traditional mindset okay now with the mixed blood marriages among the choctaw women and european men their children would enjoy a privilege beyond most peers so ever since the spanish the french and the english 
had been trading with the Choctaws and doing business with them, very often it would occur that some of these European men would take Choctaw women as their wives, and they would get a great education from their European fathers about the way that white people did things. But because the tribe was matrilineal, some of them would also ascend to positions uh, of leadership, of prominence. Uh, one such half-blooded leader in the tribe was David Folsom. There's also uh, another popular name that, that a lot of Choctaw will be familiar with is uh, Lafleur, Greenwood mm-hmm. Lafleur. Mm-hmm. He was a half-blood. And both of these guys wanted to expand the network of missionary schools on the Choctaw land. But Mashalatubi did not. He didn't want more schools because their culture, which was Christianity, often was very critical of Choctaw life in its ways. So he wasn't against the education. He was against the Christianity. Exactly. Because from the missionary's point of view, they're trying to proselytize the Choctaw. And so in order to do that, they disavow some of the customs of the tribe, some of which we still even hold dear to this day, such as our dancing and ball playing. So as a growing response to this, Mushalatubi forced the Christians of the Choctaw to, quote, dance away their religion, end Hmm. quote. So he started seeing nothing in the Christians but the attempted elimination of Choctaw culture and the Christian religion and the deterioration of his culture. it, It became one and the same. So, but here he loathed Christianity, but he often accepted the people who espoused it. Hmm. So he opposed the ministers, not because of their race, but because of their religion. And he reminded his fellow Choctaws that he had always predicted that the introduction of Christianity would ruin the Choctaws. And so he witnessed the slow erosion of his people and the society to which they were accustomed. So now he opposes missionary schools on tribal land because of a quarrel with management. There's a part of me that wants to go, chief, you were, you were drunk, but still he, he's the chief. He's the chief. Yeah. So rather than establishing more missionary schools within the nation, he pledged the entirety of the education annuity, which was granted by treaty to the Choctaw Academy in Kentucky. So there was another rising leader that aided him in this. And it was one of his nephews, Peter Pitchland. So the measure to send Choctaw children to school in Kentucky was passed unilaterally by Mushalatubi in council in 1825. Uh, now, remember, you have two other main chiefs, Mingos, and that becomes problematic a little bit later on. But so anyway, this, this newly enacted treaty didn't specify that the school had to be on tribal land. And so Mushalatubi is like, hey, I can exploit this. And so he did. So, but, but here's the thing, most of those who attended the Choctaw Academy in Kentucky, they were already promising graduates of the mission schools, and many of them were relatives of the Migos. Uh, years later, the Choctaw would come to despise both the Choctaw Academy and the, and the missionaries because of their attempted cover-up of sexual abuse. Oh, wow. So that's something, you know, we hear about missionary schools to this day, especially mm-hmm. what's happened in Canada. But in 1826, because he made this decision alone and he committed the education annuity to the Choctaw Academy, there was a civil war that nearly occurred within the Choctaw nation. Greenwood Lafleur was not pleased that he acted solely in the interest of the nation. However, there, the other traditionalist, Natakachi, learned that Lafleur was angry. And Lafleur was going with some of his braves 
to confront Mushalatubby. So oh, Natakachi, wow. yeah, yeah. So it is like an old Western showdown. So Natakachi mm -hmm. and his warriors, they go out to meet Lafleur. So you've got these two chiefs who have their warriors behind them. And as they're getting near Mushalatubby's home, presumably for Lafleur to wage war against him, Natakachi and his men met Lafleur and his braves. Now, I'm picturing this as I read it. This was an eyewitness account. I believe actually this is what Lafleur himself wrote about that occasion. He says that as they, as they are approaching one another and notice one another, uh, Natakachi holds up his hand to stop his men. So they all stop. And Lafleur and his men stop as well. So, okay, so they're facing one another, though they're far apart. So Natakachi walks to Lafleur with his warriors waiting behind him. And so whatever the distance was, he walks about midway and he stops and he holds up both of his hands to reveal that he's unarmed. And then he folds his arms across his breast. And Lafleur said that he had done so, quote, with calm and dignified silence, looking with fearless eyes, end quote. Hmm. So if you picture this, Natakachi, he's, he's like, look, I ain't scared you know <laughs> right and so lafleur approaches natakachi and as he gets close enough he extends his hand to greet him and luckily natakachi reciprocates and so friendship is restored and civil war is avoided now the other mingo or one of the others Folsom and mushalatubi they also reconcile but they remain bitter towards one another for some time and so you you have all these chiefs you know, Mushalatubi doing what he believes is in the best interest of his people because he sees what's happening, what's occurring slowly before his eyes. Wow. What a story. That calm and dignified silence looking with fearless eyes. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. The chief's coming. I mean, what? Don't you wish you had a time machine? We could go back and watch that <sighs> moment because I'm sure the braves behind them were like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? Well, and I believe that was Greenwood Lafleur or David Folsom's account of that meeting. I think it was Lafleur because and I'm going off memory. I remember reading Lafleur saying that he was very hesitant to walk and meet Natakachi because Natakachi's warriors behind him were at the ready. So mm. I assume that some of them wow. might have had had their their guns already up and ready to fire if anything went sideways. So, yeah, it's definitely a Hollywood esque showdown. Yeah. And, and so brave. He was so brave to do this. He, he took the first step and was like, you know, let's settle this here. So we see another example of this traditional versus progressive attitude when in 1826, a constitutional change occurred within the nation. As you mentioned in your research, where once chiefs were chiefs for life based on inheritance, now there would be elections every four years. Mm -hmm. So Choctaws built their legal code, taking into consideration the white way of governing and progressives were pushing these changes due to assimilation among the Choctaw. Right, and Mushala Tubby is disappointed by these changes. Uh, he is not a fan of these. Mm -hmm. So this was becoming an unstable executive over time. So David Folsom was elected as chief and he ultimately deposed Mushalatubi, his own uncle. Oh, wow. 
and I can see why there was this friction. It had to be a stressful time and it's about to get much more stressful for these chiefs. A storm is a Bruin and talks of removal began in 1826. I thought it was interesting that the traditional Mingos were considered pagans by their Christian counterparts. Yeah. And, and those traditional Mingos replaced all their Christian captains uh, with those who were pagan to unite the Choctaw, but the progressiveness, uh, excuse me, the progressives, they were really under the influence of Lafleur and Folsom and their pull was pretty powerful. And so it, it, it seems as if relocation is becoming inevitable. So how do you think Mishla Tubby felt about all this? From what I've read, initially, he was opposed to leaving the land of his ancestors. But as time went on, he began to favor relocation. And I think his mindset was, you know, the only way I can preserve traditionalism or the ancestral customs is to just take all those who are like-minded and, and go. Hmm. Well, it sounds like either way, they were going to be pushed by a force greater than any of them. So it probably was a smart move. I mean, it was a force that came in and demanded immediate removal. Shall we say it together? Who was it? President, President Andrew, Andrew Jackson. Jackson. We got to work on our, on being I know. In let's sync. try it. Let's try it one more time. Ready? Okay. President, President Andrew, Andrew Jackson. Jackson. I think you're the one lagging behind. You were uh, well, the guy I'm, in school that <laughs> messed it all up. Well, I'm waiting on you. You're kind of a slow one. So I just... <laughs> I'm, oh my I'm, lord it's a good thing you're in kentucky I'm, so president andrew jackson the very man who pledged his what to the choctaw are we saying it together oh we can you want okay to? okay ready one two, two three, three go. friendship, his friendship. The- <laughs> <laughs> but seriously y'all i once read a book that listed every treaty between the government and the choctaws and it wasn't a short book and one treaty after another broken it was just heartbreaking reading it. It was also a really boring book, but it was eye-opening <laughs> at the same time, you know? So this promise of friendship that a once seemingly grateful president, Andrew Jackson, made to the Choctaw that was broken at the drop of a hat, it really represents so much more. It's an example of the ongoing broken treaties that forever changed our tribe. So Here's big man in town, President Andrew Jackson, and he sends Secretary of War John Eaton to go share the news. I mean, he couldn't even go look his once dear friends in the eyes and tell them that they'd have to give up everything and leave their ancestral homes. What a guy. So John Eaton, his little messenger guy, he heads on over to tell the Choctaw the big news. And how did that go? Well, short story is Eaton tells Mingo David Folsom that the Choctaws would have to migrate. And what would happen if they didn't? Oh, well, see, Mississippi had achieved statehood by this time. So the Choctaws would have to be subject to Mississippi law. Mm -hmm. And that was despite the treaties that existed between the United States and the Choctaw. And they they said, look, the federal government can't intervene on your behalf. So he said removal is the only option. You have to go and live outside the state's jurisdiction. Wow. So what's interesting, too, is that by this time, Mushla Tubby favored removal, where Folsom was now against it. So Mushla Tubby was elected as Mingo of the district. It's it's crazy. I want to know what time frame that was, where it's like, now you're chief, now you're not. Oh, you're chief again. Nope, now you're not. Yeah. You know, 
That's crazy. Yeah. Well, in 1830, Mississippi declared that if anybody called themselves chief, they'd be fined and in prison for up to a year. And so those who once held high positions and were respected as chiefs were viewed just as Indians like any other. So this also brought about the abolition of tribal government. But interestingly enough, since Choctaws had received Mississippi citizenship, Musha Latubi decided to run for Congress. Ah, I'll read some of the words from Meshlatubi to the people of Mississippi. Fellow citizens, I have fought for you. I have been by your own act made a citizen of your state. I am a freeholder, nature, my parents. I am unsophisticated in the walls of foreign nations or my own. In my youth, I was a hunter, in manhood, a warrior. I always battled on the side of this republic. My feet now fail in the chase and my arm can no longer bear the burden of my bow. While in a state of nature, my ambition was alone in the shade, my hopes to be interred in the mounds of my ancestors. But you have awakened new hopes. Your laws have for me brightened my prospects. I know no man who has suffered more than myself, whether you or myself, time will tell. I have been told by my white brethren that the pen of history is impartial and that in after years, our forlorn kindred will have justice and mercy too. This fellow citizens is plain talk. Listen, for I have spoken in candor. According to your laws, I think that I'm qualified to a seat in the councils of a mighty Republic. I have no animosity against any of my white brethren who enter the list against me, but with Indian sincerity. I wish you would elect me a member of the next Congress of the United States. So did he make it to Congress? Unfortunately, no, he did not. No surprise there. I mean, these chiefs must have felt so powerless. I mean, where once they were the leader, they now held on where they could. They tried everything they could. They went from defending their tribe from warring tribes, something they, they knew how to do to trying to defend themselves against a government they didn't understand. So now they've got this law thing coming against them where before it was human strength and power and and strategy, and now it's government, something they don't understand. So even when they tried to comply and assimilate, they still were outsiders in their own land. They would never be accepted, not with the color of their skin. So you've got Mushala Tubby, who was technically a traditionalist and a so-called pagan, but he favored moving. Where was the feelings of the other chiefs at this time? Well, uh, Lafleur was a Christian progressive, and he supported the removal. Now, David Folsom and John Garland, who were the other two Mingos, they resigned in favor of Lafleur being the sole Mingo of the tribe. So now you've got a Choctaw nation that was divided between progressives under Mingo LaFleur and the traditionalists under Mingo Mushalatubi, but both in favor of removal, right? Right. So Mushalatubi and Natakachi were both full bloods, and they took the name of the Republican Party and became even more anti-Christian. They denounced the one chief government using the rhetoric of Andrew Jackson and calling these three guys, LaFleur, Folsom, and Garland, quote, despotic. Hmm. They were behaving as despots. So on the other hand, LaFleur continued exerting his power as sole chief, but his followers mainly consisted of mixed bloods and those under the influence of the missionaries. So we've got division among these two ways of thinking. And sometimes when this happens, civil war can come to fruition. 
Yeah, it, and it almost did. Um, when it was time for the mid-year annuities distribution, uh, Mashalatubi and Natakachi arrived to receive their subsidies, and they set up warriors in the area to prevent the Christian Choctaws oh. from receiving their oh. share. Wow. But the bad thing is LaFleur had a much larger and powerful team. So all that came with him asserted their authority, and they agreed not to wipe out Mushala Tubby's group upon condition that he resigned as chief. So he agreed, but then when he got back to his district, he just kept acting as chief anyway. <laughs> I love that. Okay, no yeah. problem. Back off, yeah. fine. I'll He's resign. Like, I'll placate you. <laughs> yeah. And then he just goes about his day as chief again, just like he, you know, brought in his whiskey into the schoolroom. Yeah. <laughs> he does hey, what he kids. wants, okay? <laughs> hey, kids, watch this. <laughs> right. uh, interesting guy. Like, there's something so endearing about him. But, okay, so then a date that we talked to all know came about, September of 1830. Yeah, is actually uh, precisely September 27th of 1830. So you can do the math. What is that, 111 years uh, or two? I, well, I can't do the math, but you can. So 2021. Oh, I'm in sales. I don't count. <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll let everyone criticize our lack of math skills. <laughs> but September 27th, 1830, the government and the tribes came together at Dancing Rabbit Creek in Mississippi. And the Dancing Rabbit Creek Treaty took place here. And that initiated the removal of the Choctaw from their homelands in Mississippi. Now, when Mushalatubi appeared at this event, he came in his military uniform. Now, he was granted a rank for serving the United States in the War of 1812. I'm, I'm not precisely sure what his rank was. I know Pushmataha was granted the rank of Brigadier General, but I forget Mushalatubi's. But anyway, he thought his uniform might grant him some esteem with the commissioners and Secretary of War, but he... Greenwood LaFleur and Little Leader were the principal signers of the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek. Again, I have to say it again, it's so sad. He showed up in uniform hoping that might help in their negotiations, but yeah, but they had to sign it. Uh, ultimately, that's the route they went. And what did the tribe think of Mishalatubi for signing the treaty? Well, for that act, they hated him. You know, it's, it's it, politics. The, the love of the people ebbs and flows. They hated him for it. So he gave up his role as chief to his nephew, Peter Pitchlin, and uh, he just, he's like, okay, I'm backing off. Hmm. And so the removal begins in the fall of 1831. I can't imagine how terrifying this must have been. Again, they were, they were powerless. They didn't know what was going to happen next, and they're moving to this land that they know nothing about. Yeah, and well, he, Marshall Latubi leaves his home with his people, some of his people, and his nephew is now his chief you know so you got this guy who was a war chief and had exploits as a war chief and then he becomes mingo of a district and then he's the last traditionalist fighting assimilation and now hmm. he has handed the reins over to the next generation hmm. so tell us what you know about the experience of mushletubby and his people on their way to indian territory all right now when a lot of people talk about the trail of tears they only talk about the Cherokee because that's what is mostly taught in school around our area, Kentucky, Tennessee, and so forth. But the Choctaw were the first to leave on the Trail of Tears, and the government provided five wagons for every 1,000 immigrants. But 
most of the Choctaw walk that 550 miles to Indian territory. And when they reached Memphis, Tennessee, which was where they were to cross the Mississippi, the U.S. agent hadn't even booked a steamboat for them to cross the river. So they waited and they're camping out in harsh winter conditions with only one blanket issued per family. You had one job, one yeah. job. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sounds like a major lack of preparation. The bad thing was it was in the heart of winter too, and it was colder than it had been in that area in the past based on what contemporaries had to say. Alexis de Tocqueville was a Frenchman and a scientist and historian, and he happened to encounter them and wrote about it. I'll read an excerpt from your paper of his writings. It was then in the heart of winter and the cold ravaged that year with an unaccustomed violence. Snow had hardened the ground and the river carried along enormous pieces of ice. The Indians brought along their families with them. They dragged behind them the wounded, the ill infants who had just been born and the old who were going to die. They had neither tents nor carts, but only some provisions and arms. I saw them embark to cross the great river and this solemn spectacle will never leave my memory. One heard neither tears nor complaints among this assembled crowd. They were silent. Their misfortunes were old and they felt them to be irreparable. All the Indians had already entered the vessels that were there to carry them. Their dogs still remained on the shore. When the animals finally saw that they were going away forever, together they let out frightful howls and dashing at once into the icy waters of the Mississippi, they followed their masters swimming. Oh, it's horrible. It really is. Um, I'm glad that we have that account, that firsthand account, because I think in his own words, you can picture it and just see how miserable it was, but also you can admire their dignity. But you know, the journey wouldn't get any better from there. They would deal with low waters, with sicknesses, and obviously we've already seen poor planning on the United States part, and they had minimal shelter, and all that made traveling just harsh. So for those who did survive and didn't die of cholera and other issues, those people enter Indian territory and receive their rations. But you mentioned that the rations were often spoiled. The Choctaw were starving so badly that they would accept the food that the army had rejected. Wow. They would take anything at that point. So yeah. we descendants of these Indians that survived the Trail of Tears, as people call it today, we came from survivors. It just, it blows my mind sometimes. They lived and we're here because of them. So what's it like in their new lands? You would like to think that they get there and everything's just great, but there's still unrest. The agreement with the United States was that no Christian minister would enter Indian territory. And Mashalatubi discovered that there was a missionary that had gone ahead of the Choctaw to live in this new territory. So when that wasn't kept, he wrote to the president. And part of what he had to say was, that, hey, we were promised during the negotiations that the missionaries wouldn't receive any more of our money. Neither do we wish for any of the present missionaries to go with us beyond the Mississippi. And he mentions that actually the, the missionary's name, Dr. Talley, he says, who is already settled on our land must be ordered out. Mm -hmm. Now, in my research, Dr. Talley didn't leave immediately, but he does eventually go back to Mississippi because records indicate that he died in Mississippi in 1835. Wow. Dr. Talley's like, thanks. I, I came all this way, but okay. 
All right, I'm just going to turn around. Okay, I'm going to turn around then. And then what ended up happening to your grandfather? Well, around that same time that Dr. Talley died in 1835, there's a smallpox epidemic that afflicted the plains, and it wound up killing between 500 and 600 Choctaws, but Musha Latubi would die from it in 1838. It's interesting. He went through all of that, and then he died of, of smallpox, mm-hmm. which you know a lot of them did. And so ends a legend. If you think about it, these chiefs experienced so much once they were free in their territory, among their people leading and guiding, then they saw the changes coming and they tried to fight those changes, eventually learning they couldn't win, but they had to prepare as best they could and brace for what would inevitably happen. Ultimately, they were forced to migrate to Indian territory and they started an entirely new life. I can't imagine. I sometimes think about it and I'm like, did they lay there in bed sometimes at night and think about their lives before? And just having this, if you think about the stress when you just move to a new house or move to a new state or um, a, a family member dies and the trauma that comes with, you know, seeing a loved one die or the stress that comes with moving and These were human beings that had normal lives in Mississippi. They had farms, they had animals, they had friends, they had community, very strong community, and they were so uprooted. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's just, it's, it's gotta be trauma that just passed down for a very long time. Cause even when they got to Indian territory, they still didn't have easy lives. Well, and you mentioned that trauma. And what's interesting is that there are scholars of uh, psychology and so forth who actually write about uh, generational trauma, about how we who are alive today still bear the trauma of our ancestors. And interestingly enough, one of those said scholars is actually Choctaw herself. Katrina Walters, I believe her name is, she and I connected and have spoken a bit on on Facebook. Yeah, you mentioned that and I thought I'd bring that up for what it's worth. I need to get to know her too. Yeah. Well, and what else was interesting, you know, I would have thought based on how the whites treated him that Musha Latubi would hate him. I really thought he would have. But what's so fascinating is that he was a firm friend of the whites till the day he died. No way. He Well, he even upheld the laws of this dominant society, despite the personal cost. And a couple of years before he died, he had heard that some Choctaws had become hostile to the United States. And while he was in a tribal council, it's recorded as him having saying, it's enough to make my old heart bleed. Oh, wow. But that's surprising to me. Well, yeah, his life was such a paradox. I mean, on one occasion, he's for missionary education, but he hates it years later. Uh, He's in favor of the white settlers. And then he hates their ways. He accepts them, but he despises their Christianity and colonialism. So, Hmm. well, I mean, I think a lot of times people try to put people in boxes. Oh, if you're a Democrat or Republican, you feel only this way or that way when really, you know, it's not always black and white. Sometimes there's gray areas here and there. So I'd like to read your words, which also includes a quote from Pitchland from a gathering of statesmen. In the face of detractors, his efforts to preserve the traditional ways pitted him against the progressives within the tribe and the machinations of the United States. He was tolerant toward Americans and those among his people who assimilated. Still, he did not want complete assimilation within the tribe. He unsuccessfully fought against the prevailing colonialism, but did all he could to preserve the traditional ways of the Choctaw. 
He stood on the precipice of his people's traditional and progressive ways. The culture he knew eroded because of colonialism. Considering the relationship between the Choctaw Nation and the United States before removal, a system of colonialism existed when he ascended to District Mingo that perpetuated a cycle, making relocation inevitable. As a fierce warrior, cunning statesman, and adamant traditionalist, Mushalatubi was well-respected not only among his people, but the United States too. Mushalatubi was the sole remaining full-blood leader of a district, the only link with the Choctaw past. His passing marked the end of an era. He had been the leader of his people, sometimes in their good graces and other times not. He did what he believed was right, even if it meant doing it alone. He faced down assimilation and went with his people to a new land. He led, but he also followed. Upon his death, he was buried near his home beneath a pile of rocks. The Mingo, who represented the Choctaw past, upheld it, lived it, and took it with him to his grave. Thank you for this excellent research and for walking through your findings with me, Stephen. It's, this has been so interesting. So what started you writing in the first place? Well, of course, I have graduate degrees, and so I love research as it is. But my grandmother, you know, she was full-blooded Choctaw. She passed away in 2018. And my dad, my aunt, and my uncle, none of them speak Choctaw. They don't really know the culture other than having been to the reservation when they were younger. And I felt like my connection with my Mm -hmm. people was severed when she died. And I wanted to revive that for myself, but also for my children. That's great. And so your Mima, she spoke Choctaw. Yes, she did. I mean, I I think she knew it better than she did English sometimes. And I would try and get her to teach me how to speak it. But, you know, she just she didn't do it. She would teach me words. But whenever she was on the telephone, you could tell she was talking with someone back home in Mississippi. They she would be speaking away in Choctaw. And all of a sudden I'd hear her say my name and then there'd be laughter. And I'm sitting there going, what are you talking about? (laughs) You know, but but now she grew up on the reservation. And like I said, my dad, my uncle and my aunt, they visited, they would take family vacations and go there and visit. So like I said, when she died, I felt like that link was cut. And I just realized if my children are going to learn, I have to be the one to preserve this and pass it on. Oh, for sure. For sure. And so you went on kind of a journey with your family to visit some places to reconnect you to that link. Tell us about that. So back in July, I was fortunate enough to have that whole month off a sabbatical and my wife and my son and I, we went to the reservation in Mississippi. And so we went by the tribal offices and I took them to Naniwaya, which means in English leaning hill, but is the mother mound of the Choctaw people. Mm -hmm. And we even drove back to where the Dancing Rabbit Creek Treaty was signed that had to have been something. Was that interesting? Yeah. I mean, for me, it was, it was a lot more emotional than I thought it would have been. Of course, my Meemaw, she was buried on the reservation too. And we were unable to go to the funeral at the time, but I always said, I'll go and visit her grave. And so we, it took us a while to find it, but once we found it, we did pay respects there. And she's yeah. buried next to her father, Awful. We called him growing up mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, knowing all this history and you go to these places, it it really is a bit emotional. Oh, absolutely. 
I also went on a Choctaw journey of sorts. I dragged my husband and my mama and my aunt and, you know, I just, I needed it so much. I had to see those places where my ancestors walked and lived and died and I needed it for myself, but also to honor them. So how did you start this whole research process about your own family then? So back in 2004 is when I began studying to become a minister and Meemaw had told me at the time when I was in school that her grandfather was a preacher, you know, and I said, well, Mm -hmm. you know, what was his name? And she said, his name was Simpson, Simpson Tubby, and he was Methodist and he was pretty important person. That was really it. So I happened to be just playing around on Google and researching Simpson Tubby. And I actually found that he was one of the main sources for John Swanton's study of the Choctaw in the 1930s. Now, Swanton, John Swanton, he was one of the first recipients of a PhD in the United States, and that was at Harvard. Wow. So I found the book that he wrote. I I looked for it, and it's actually available on demand. And in the index, I found Simpson Tubby's name, and I read all of these different portions where he is specifically mentioned as the source. So Simpson was my second great-grandfather. He was my great-great-grandfather. And there's one excerpt where Swanton quotes from Simpson, and he was saying that he used to have in his possession a peace pipe that his father gave him. And in explaining the peace pipe, his father, who was Lewis Tubby, gave it to him because he inherited it from his father, whose name was Alik Tubby, whose father was Mushala Tubby. Wow. Was this like, what did this feel like to discover all this? Well, I had no clue who any of these people were. I was <laughs> I was just learning about Simpson. I learned that he was a Methodist clergyman, that he was a missionary to his own people. And then I, I, I get to this part in Swanton's book that there's Simpson, his dad, Lewis, his dad, Alik Tabi, and his dad, Mashala Tabi. And then, so I look up these names in the index of this book, and it's when I find the reference to Mashala Tabi that uh, Swanton said he was the last great chief of the Choctaw. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. So Simpson's Simpson's my great, great grandfather. And if that is his great grandfather, so I'm like, how many greats is that? That's five greats. Wow. So yeah, so I'm like, that's my fifth great grandfather. That's so exciting to think about that. I mean, it's not just, you know, I think some people go, oh, I am related to a Cherokee princess, whatever that means, or I I, I have a chief Cherokee chief as a great grandfather, I think maybe on my aunt's uncle's side, you know, things like that. I I get (laughs) that all the time. Yeah. And people are like, so you're, you're Indian. I'm like, um, mm -hmm," you know, and they're like, so what are you Cherokee? I'm like, no, everybody's Cherokee except me, you know, (laughs) I, and I tell them I'm Choctaw and they're like, oh, well, my great, great grandmother was a Choctaw princess I've heard, or, you know, I'm from or excuse me, a Cherokee princess, or I'm from Cherokee royalty. And I'm like, yeah, you really don't know much about it. I think, you know, but <laughs> go, yeah. go do a little study in. Yeah. yeah, go do a yeah. little study. Yeah. And I, it, but this really is, it's not just that he was a chief, but his time in history that, that just angst of what was going on and the unsettled push and pull between the traditionalists and the progressives and the fight he had within himself, um, you know, education and Christianity, all these things. I mean, he was, he was in a pivotal moment in history. And so it, I would think that it's, it, again, you must be so proud to think about him and, and his leadership. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, he is, uh, like I said, a paradoxical person, but he's, he's also a person that I look at and I go, you know, he lived in a unique time. He faced unique challenges. He did the best that he could. Was he perfect? No, none of us are, but, uh, you know, he's, he's my ancestor Mm -hmm. and, you know, in our culture, in the U S we often look to the future you know, I want to build a better life for my children, for my grandchildren, great-grandchildren. But, you know, when you think about it, indigenous cultures and other cultures, uh, especially like the Japanese, they they look to the past. And the reason they live with the honor they live with is so that they will honor their ancestors who paved the way and gave them life. You know, but, you know, we have to live in this fast-paced world with people who are constantly moving forward. So, you know, there has to be a balance well said. There has to be a balance, but but again, not forgetting those who came before us, exactly. honoring them however we can, learning from them, and recognizing too that there are parts of us that we are the way we are, partly because of our DNA from mm-hmm. our ancestors. And so, when you hear stories about, oh my, you know, for me, my great grandmother used to get on this white horse and ride as fast and hard as she could, and people would tell her to stop doing it. She was like. I'm going to keep doing this because it's what I want to do. You know, sometimes I have that same stubbornness in me and I think, oh, I wonder if I got some of that from her. But um, <laughs> I've, I've never known a stubborn Choctaw woman in my life. Not at all. Right. Thank you again so much for your time you spent researching and then sharing this with us. I was really excited to, to have a chance to read your paper and thought we have got to put this on a recording. So do you have any native causes that you'd like to promote with me today? I would like to mention the Native American Indian Association in Nashville, Tennessee. You know, Meemaw was very active, I believe, even on the board in the early years of this organization. And as far back as my memory goes as a child, every fall we would go to the powwow in Nashville that was organized by the NAIA, the Native American Indian Association. Okay. I love that. Okay. Well, I will be sure to put that information on my native chalk talk Facebook page and listeners, you can go to N a I a T org slash powwow to learn more about, you know, this great powwow looks like a lot of fun. And we can all think of your Mima when we go to that and looks like they just had a powwow in October of 2021. So keep an eye out for 2022's events. And finally, are there any words of wisdom you'd like to share with us today? Don't eat yellow snow. Oh, that's good. Is that an <laughs> Indian proverb? <laughs> uh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I think Mushla Tubby's looking at you going, really? <laughs> He's like, that's the best you got? <laughs> uh, in all seriousness, the, you know, I've really thought about that. The one thing that I would say is claim who you are. Ever since I was a child growing up, I had members of my family and even teachers and other folks, you know, whenever you'd fill out a, a form or something that, you know, what's your name, date of birth, your sex, what's your ethnicity? You know, I used to always want to check Native American because I was like, I am, but mm-hmm. I was always told, but you're not enough. You're more mm-hmm. white than you are Native American. And so for years, I always checked Caucasian. And, you know, I'm not ashamed to be Choctaw and white or of Scottish derivation, but I'm really proud of my Choctaw heritage. And I think one of the side effects of colonialism is the slow erasure of our ethnicities, our cultures. And that's why I'm on the quest to relearn, recover, 
and pass on to my children. It's because, you know, yes, I am white, but I'm also Choctaw too. I am Native American. Very much so. And I, I think those are great words of wisdom for all of us. No, seriously, thank you. This has been an, an awesome experience to do this with you and uh, Yakuki. Yakuki. The Choctaw Nation has always provided a foundation upon which a future can be built. From our home in Southeast Oklahoma to a bingo hall that grew to be one of the largest casinos in the world. Today's summer school programs lay the groundwork for a love of learning. Small business programs support local economies. And with over 10,000 jobs created, Choctaw offers financial stability to tribal members and our neighbors. Together, we build success because together we're more. Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends. <laughs>